You're listening to the Music Interval Theory Podcast with TC and Frank. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode in the Music Interval Theory Podcast. Today I want to invite you to an outstanding discussion that we recently had at the Virgil campus with the fantastic Meta Nation. So the subject we discussed was the emotions of the intervals. And I can say already that this was a very insightful session. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. It is almost a philosophical subject to some degree, I know, because yeah. it, it depends so much on the artist and how the artist perceives the emotions from the intervals. And there are I can tell you already, there are more variables that also influence the emotion of an interval. And we will get to this as well. So it's pretty hard to isolate the interval purely from all the other things and just look at that is the true nature of this interval. That is rather hard to do, but maybe we can at least give it a try. What I can say is that I think one and two, to me, give a sense of motion. I mean, I don't want to stay there somehow. And then um, three and four give more peace, more calm, depending on which one. And uh, probably the, the seven is just uh, neutral things for, for me. I look at one and two on just the surface level. There's so many other levels to those intervals, but just the surface level without applying any technique. Just if you hit a one and hit a two, You're right that two wants to go someplace. One feels like your angry daughter that just you want to get away from her because she's a little bit annoying, but she doesn't have to move because one doesn't really feel like it has to move, but something has to happen. It's a lot less obvious than two is. One is a harshest interval, but it also is only harsh momentarily because you can resolve it in beautiful ways. Just on its own, it has a dual personality. Two only has one real personality. It just wants to go someplace. It wants to resolve. That's the first level for me. I'm hoping that is a catalyst for you guys to jump in what you're thinking. Yeah, I, I have some thoughts already. Uh, yeah, I'm a beginner in music theory and all, all kinds of stuff. So for me, every interval sets up some expectations and I'm not necessarily talking about resolutions. To give an example, so what's wonderful about the root cycles, it breaks expectations. So when, when you have an interval, then you have a mental expectations. What kind of interval? I mean, in the, in the horiz uh, horizontal setting, what can come next? And what's uh, wonderful is about when you when you break these expectations, like can two, three comes after each other? What does that mean? I mean, obviously five is something that can just go on and on, but the rest of them are just, if you continue them, you break expectations more and more. So they kind of want to modulate into some other interval. So for me, every interval kind of sets out a path or several paths that are kind of expected. But it also gives another branching out factor for for unexpected or following meter wars. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the interesting thing is intervals are, are like people. You, you know, you ever 
you ever hang out with certain friends and they rub off on each other. Pretty soon you're acting like your friend and they're acting like you and they're creating it. Two people, but one new personality. It's what happens when two flavors get together, they create another flavor. And the same thing with intervals. And each interval has a uniqueness. So if we started at the beginning and just talked about one, all of our scales that are the normal scales, there's only two ones in the scales. And those two ones are very powerful because you just have to move one of them and the scale changes. You can move two of them and dramatically change the scale where they go. And you can make it exotic. So ones are unique in that there's only two. You know, unlike twos where you have five twos, the twos are in between the ones. So if you start realizing, oh, I can combine these in ways that aren't really scale-wise, I can just move the one you start getting what we call faux scales or stuff that sounds like a scale, but it isn't actually. So we go from our normal scales and switch them, and you get some interesting byproducts of that. Uh, for example, if I have a scale, scale number one, and I'm looking at the B and C, if I'm in C, B and C, that is a placement of one one, and the other is between E and F, right? Well, if I move the B and C down to a B flat and B, now what scale am I in? Because you can't relate it. It's not a C scale anymore. If it is, you got it, a minus seven and a seven. So thinking in terms of a scale is a lower level of thinking than thinking in terms of the interval relationships and how you move. And it's not a bad sound either, uh, especially if you move from the B and C to a B and a B flat. So you have one going to 11. Now you've set yourself up in a place where you can do resolutions because 11s resolve to nines and ones resolve to threes. Either way, you know, the top note or the bottom note can be used. Anyway, that's all I want to say because I want to get you guys started and jump in. It doesn't matter if you're right. It just matters that you're thinking. If you keep you're holding your sustaining um, interval in a vertical structure. It's not every instrument tolerates every interval or, or likes it that much as the other. I, I have a feeling of this. I, I'm not sure it's true, but I certainly have a feeling that it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, well, ab absolutely true. It really depends on the sound source as well. And it's interesting because if you take the human voice, then you have a lot of these little microtonal changes in the voice. So they are not perfect pitch. And I think this also tickles out a lot of nuances in the frequency spectrum, which makes certain intervals more pleasant or unpleasant to the ear. So that is the reason why there is no <laughs> worse sound than playing two violins on the same pitch. <laughs> You have to have three violins at least, and then it does make sense. But two violins, this is really brutal. With the human voice, it actually works. If you have a choir consisting of two guys only, they are not 100% on the same pitch. They are always you know, moving around the perfect pitch a little bit. And it is more interesting to listen to that constellation kind of. So it does work way better with the human voice than with certain instruments. And I just mentioned the violin because I you know, once did a recording session with two violins jumping on the same note as passing tone. 
I will never do this again. <laughs> this was really awful. So I, I had to change it on stage, actually, because I looked for an error in there and I blamed the musicians. Of course, that is what you do as a good composer. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I didn't blame anybody, but it, it jumped out in a very bad way. And it just happened uh, to be the, the same note in the score for a short moment of time. Don't blame the violinists because violinists will live with that the rest of their life. If they fell short, you know, trombone players don't care. <laughs> they can take it. <laughs> oh, well, the brass guys. Well, the interesting thing, what's your conclusion, is that intervals, if they're surrounded by other intervals, have a whole different feeling. And even on instruments. Also dynamics. Since every of those tones that make up an interval create their own set of overtones. So if you play the one interval in the harmonic range somewhere in pianissimo, it might sound okay. But if you hit this very hard in fortissimo, it will stick out completely. So dynamics also play a big role. So a one played vertically usually sounds harsh and dissonant and wants to move someplace. So it has tension in there. If you use it horizontally, out of a sudden, it is beautiful. It's almost part of the romantic era where you have a lot of leading tones and these smooth connections. And this is just brilliant. It has none of this harsh character anymore. It depends on how you want to use it. And that makes it a little bit tricky to narrow it down to a defined set of emotions that you get from a specific interval. Two in particular starts off the authentic cadence. This would be the most obvious way to resolve it. But you can do it chromatically as well. Like let those guys move in opposite directions. And then you also end up on a four interval, which brings me to the three and four creating a sense of tonal stability. So if you want to have a little bit of a rest point in your intervallic writing, threes and fours might be fine for that purpose. But these are just small building blocks. And that is, again, this surface level, as you pointed out, TC. Now things change completely if you put them into ICs and create some three-part structures. Or with four parts, is even more complex if you want to even go there. But if you put two things together, you not only have two intervals, but three. So you have the first interval, the second one, and the OI that you created. So out of a sudden, if you play a three plus two, let's say you have a three and the nature of a three, you have the two and the nature of a two, and out of a sudden you have a five in there and the nature of a five. So now the question is, okay, what do I do with that? Right? What's the overall character of that interval combination? It, again, depends on the orchestration, how strong you make the individual parts in the orchestration, maybe, where it appears in the register. But if you know the nature of each of those intervals and the elements in there, then you have musical options and you won't run into any musical dead ends <laughs> and don't know how to continue the composition or the sketch, whatever you do. That, to me, is the interesting part of using the intervals in composition since they always point to the potential next step. It feels like once you pick an interval, it automatically points to other doors that you may want to enter or not, but you can't get stuck. And that is just fantastic. I just got my microphone working. I think of intervals primarily in terms of melody. And it seems to me that if you consider them melodically, you also have to consider their direction. Are they ascending? Are they descending? Sure. For example, 
in uh, anything from a tritone to, let's say, the major seven is, to me, yearning or aspirational if it's going up. On the other hand, if it's going down, those intervals seem to release tension rather quickly. You're heading more for stability. And the fourth, for me, always implies stability or as in Hindemith, monumentality or solidity. Yeah, great. Right. And it, it all makes perfect sense. The point is really, if you talk about melody, then obviously it has to be a sequence of intervals or there is no meaning to just playing one interval. It can be a motif and it can be a motif that shows up over and over again, but it will be most likely embedded in other intervals. And then the question to me is always, okay, if you take a big interval, what is happening around that big interval? Melodically, just talking the horizontal way here, not vertical. And you will see that most likely the big intervals are surrounded by the small ones. Like, for example, take Indiana Jones. This da-da-da, all chromatic movement, da-da-da-da, big interval. Now jump back, da-da-da, small intervals. Then again, chromatic ones, da-da-da, now a big one. And it becomes very disconnected if you only play big intervals. <laughs> it's also very hard to intonate, by the way. <laughs> so it, it depends. It's the composer in the end and how you perceive those intervals. TC, I heard you write some stuff that I believe would not sound good orchestrated just by looking at the sketch. I was so happily surprised when I listened to the orchestration. I thought, okay, I should really give this a second look, what you did, since I did not expect this sound coming out of the sketch if you orchestrated this. And you didn't change it, you put stuff around it and you put things into context. And this was really interesting to watch because it was completely new to me that you, know, you can change or alter the emotion so drastically by setting a different light on just a few intervals in the sketch. I can't recall what the piece was. Well, now you're scaring me. <laughs> I have all of them. I have collected all of them. Believe me, my Dropbox never forgets. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, first thing I want to say is, Dan, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you? You were hiding below my text file that I've opened with the notes. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was hiding in plain sight here. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. But good, anyway, good to good see to you. See, it's good to see you all again. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just would say the beginning of the course is all just about writing a line. Well, you are thinking in terms of a scale or something like that. That's the basic start. You're thinking, thinking in terms of scales. But as you advance, you write a line and you just think the intervals. And that's very difficult. I think if you try to do that, you'll find yourself still thinking of a scale. But the idea is that the inertial motion of a line is extremely powerful and it can hold its own weight against another line. And that line can be completely unrelated, but just a good line. So you have two good lines. And if you play them together, avoiding it, you know, 13s, generally, they're going to sound good. And you don't have to actually be in a scale. You can just write lines. 
And it works. I mean, I know you guys have sat on your DAW and you just put up a really good string sound and you just write a line. Oh, that sounds good. And that could be to picture. For me, it's all about the two art forms, you know, the picture and the music. Because most of what I have done is always to picture, even if I didn't have a picture. It's in my head. I always started with a topic and I'm picturing what it is. And in the course, there's lots of that. You know, I mean, some stuff sounds like a Disney type music. Frank will probably remember it, but I was visualizing hippos. They're walking to a lake or a pond. And so I wrote a piece with that in mind. And of course, then when they got to the pond, I imagined them doing a dance, like a fantasy dance in the water. One jumping off and she's in a tutu bathing suit and splashing, you know, like Disney pictures. And so that was the core inspiration of the intervals I chose to use. And what's beautiful about music for us is we can do both. We can be diatonic or we can be intervolic. And if you think of the intervolic stuff, you can get pretty outside pretty quick. I mean, outside meaning a little crazy. But when you go into diatonic from it, it's like a big giant resolution, which is really nice. Resolutions and reverse resolutions are always satisfying to me. So I kind of look at the two systems, intervolic and diatonic, as really liking each other a lot. And you can look at them as two bodies that really get along very well. So if you're a diatonic person and that's your education and you're good at it, because you can be unbelievable as a composer and player in the diatonic system, and you add intervolic to your thinking, you're going to be a monster, in my opinion. You'll be somebody who can handle any kind of a job and do it very quickly, because by knowing both systems, you're never going to be stuck. You're always going to see options of places you could go, especially working to film and television, because a lot of my experiences in animation where you have to switch up quickly on some stuff. That's kind of an older style now. I mean, if you watch some of the TV shows, have you guys ever watched the show Suits? Anybody watch that show Suits? Oh, yeah. Okay. So a lot of it is just grooves with stuff against it. And the opening main title is a bluesy sort of vocal with some crazy lyrics. But it's inf it's infectious, right? So that's a perfect show for an intervolic guy because you can set up a rhythm and just put intervals together and go someplace or diatonic stuff because they have a lot of songs. The songs are always commentary on what's going on. And that show is probably old now, but they did nine seasons of that. And if you did that show and you did nine seasons of it, you'd be very rich. And that's something that would be very easy for you guys to do. Well, I'll put it real specific. Dan, I know this is true of you because you were a good writer before. And I know that intervolic thinking is more prevalent in your writing now. I know you're different. All you're doing is rounding out your education and the intervolic thinking. It takes a while, really takes a while. I think everybody should sit down at the beginning of the, of the day and write a line randomly blind. Sit on your keyboard, get a good sound and just use your ears and just write a line. Then write another line and then fix it. 
If there's something that sounds bad, just fix it and see how fast you can do it. Try to just get that horizontal feeling going because if you get a big show, you can put a rhythm groove and write one line against it and you're going to have a cue. You know, you have to experiment with intervals. It's a technique that you get better at if you practice it. I'm talking about five minutes a day. Just sit down and hear those once and then resolve them from the top or resolve them from the bottom. And just try getting real familiar with that. You're going to come up with some stuff that you'll probably use later. But you'll be very surprised. Henry Mancini all the way to Mike Post. The big things they wrote were tunes like Hill Street Blues, Greatest American Hero. I think somebody else actually wrote that. Mike produced it. But think of all the Mancini tunes. Those are all songs. Those are all horizontal lines, beautiful melodies. I have no idea why I'm giving you guys this speech because you're all doing it anyway. But I guess I'm talking to myself. <laughs> A little bit of self-motivation never hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I did a few times, and it really worked, is start with your more or less ordinary chord progression. The stuff that everybody else also could have written, you know, in a key, whatever. Just triads. And then pick satellite tones and write either ones or twos, either above or below the triads. And just alternate. If you don't know where to start, just alternate and fix it if you don't like it. And you can do it after the fact, of course. But if you did that, you end up with great four-part structures that are most likely not on that musical key anymore. And you get to other notes that have not been part of the scale originally. And this is just an interesting way of using the nature of the one or two to spice up some of those ordinary things, which means you don't have to write completely crazy stuff to get started with the intervals. That's absolutely not true. You can use the intervals to just make your writing more colorful and go from there one step at a time. And it's interesting what sounds you will create just by adding those satellite tones. But you will see that it sounds more colorful for sure. And then another thing is that is also so practical that I never did before. And I also, I grabbed this from, from UTC, I believe. Spend enough time with whatever interval you pick. It doesn't matter what it is, But things get out of hands usually because you switch from one interval too quickly. And then if you start with the one interval and it gives you a certain flavor to the composition and then you switch to the five and you just compose with fives, which is more or less pentatonic and open writing and all these things. Maybe the Ludian scale even if you put in enough fives. <laughs> But then it changes the sound so dramatically from the one interval. And if you did this very often then you won't have any consistency in the writing. But instead, if you live with this one interval for 30 bars or 60 bars even, out of a sudden it creates this continuity and musical flow and it gives the audience enough time so that it sinks in. And it really brings the emotion across way better. So this is the result of writing longer pieces, of course. If you only want to write or have to write like 15 to 30 second pieces, it's a bit hard to switch through the intervals because the sound will just change too much. Spend enough time with just one interval and let it sink in. This is way more beneficial for the musical story than switching to another perspective too quickly. We used to say in the days when I used to write jingles, I 
Ruiz used to refer to the luxury of a tight brief. It was always easier to write when you were very limited with what you could do, what, what you needed to do for the client. I do the same thing when I write. I try and limit my options in terms of what I'm going to do. It makes it much more manageable and easier to explore. A good composition needs one, one good idea, maybe one and a half good ideas. And it's enough. And it's about all the listener can understand, I think, and grasp, especially on a first-time listening. Yeah, those are good words. That boils back to part of the reason why young, good composers are potentially good. They own the music mentally. It's them. You know, if the music, they want to impress everybody, they want to be John Williams. It's a big, giant projection of something that is just an illusion, in my opinion. So, you know, our philosophy is you don't own it. You just received it. And then you put it back out, and then you broadcasted it. That doesn't mean you don't have an ego. Of course, all composers have an ego. Except for me, I don't have any ego. <laughs> but I think it's very important for you to work on it and not own it, because you're actually just wanting to find the emotion and express that. You'll impress them if you don't try to. It just depends on how many times you have gone around the sun. I've gone around the sun a lot of times. And believe me, you get older and you just start saying, well, I'm not going to care about that anymore. I just, look how lucky I am. I'm the luckiest man on the planet. I get to write music and I get to do this. And I'm going to be very thankful for that because that's a very small percentage of people that ever get there. And it's a battle though, between your creative ego who's always on your shoulder yakking at you and what you really want to do is enjoy your life. And your life includes music. And that includes all of the places you could get tripped up. And one of the big places is trying to be Mozart or John Williams. I'm guilty of that. In my late life now, I decided I'm going to start practicing the guitar again. And so I'm watching all these guitar players, these young guitar players. Absolutely mind-blowing technique. The interesting thing is, instead of, I don't want to look at that because my ego gets crushed when I look at that. I embrace it, and I look at it, and I want to watch it more and more and more. And what I start to realize, these guys are fantastic, but they're limited in their knowledge of how notes work together. A lot of them are playing kind of the same stuff. It's basically gymnastics. There are some guys that are better than others, and the gymnastics are amazing. I mean, the first time you're completely blown away. The second time, wow. Third time, fourth time, you recognize the same legs, so they've practiced them. But some of the guys, like I was telling at one of our last meetings, this guy, Matteo Mancuso, I liked him because he was actually playing through changes like giant steps or something like that. And it was really beautifully done. And I thought, wow, not only does he have great technique, but he's actually learned some of these tunes and there's value in learning tunes like that as an instrumentalist, which I'm just doing late in life. And so I'm open to anybody that's got suggestions <laughs> on where to start because uh, I just want to enjoy it. And I, I'm in a pretty musical area, and there's a lot of musicians in Georgia. I'm going to have a little demonstration coming up soon of all these different guitar players. And so we can all look at them together and listen to them. It'll be fun because you'll hear some really great styles, 
And some of the guys use some really wonderful intervolic stuff too. But most of them are playing pentatonic, but super fast. It's almost like there is a trade-off between technicality and virtuosity on one side and musicality on the other. Yeah, yes. If I was ever developed enough, which is not going to happen because I just don't have the time or the years left, but if I was super developed like that, I would want to make the audience wait a long time before I, I did my gymnastics, you know, make them wait because it seems like all these guys, they can't wait to get to show their chops, you know. I have a funny story about Miles Davis that this reminds me of. When I was a kid, I think turned 21 or something, and there was a nightclub called Shelley's Manhole. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Shelley's Manhole before. Yeah. It was a famous club. Shelley Mann was a drummer. And Miles Davis was going to play far into his career where he's just doing very minimalistic stuff. And so I'm, I went there and I'm just feeling like, wow, I'm in the jazz scene. This is really great. So the band comes up and they play a few tunes and two songs and then three songs and then four songs. And I'm, where's Miles Davis? You know, is he coming out? You know, so after about an hour of the preset, everybody, all of a sudden it's quiet. He comes out and he was a striking looking guy too. So he comes out and he's got his horn. And the band starts playing like a just a simple groove. You know, it's sort of modal-ish. And Miles takes his horn up after a long intro. And he goes, <laughs> That was it. He walked <laughs> off the stage. Oh, God. <laughs> this actually Don't takes some, some guts to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of guts. But you know what? That's like, I don't know, 40 years ago, and I still remember that. What an imprint. <laughs> Something resonated very much with the beginner attitude and trying to put everything in there. It's your stuff, right? Now, I'm in so much of a beginner compared to you. I don't play instrument, whatever, no training at all. I'm at that point where I'm so much of a beginner. And it's not yet a problem because generally I, I can afford myself to sound bad. But still, even at this phase, some, sometimes one can be so cruel to himself. Uh, it's like, you know, we build a mental block. You have a vision what you want to make. Uh, and, and then you fail to execute on it or, or at some point it falls apart your plan because your technique is not there yet. And it's really hard to overcome the fear. So one trick that started to work for me is that, I, and it's similar to what Dan said about um, like having some constraints, but this is with a twist. So I, I simply just go some random web page and ask it to give me some random chords. With that trick, I remove myself. It's not my music. I can always blame the computer that generates a bit. <laughs> but it makes it suddenly fun. A friend of mine who teaches art gets her students to trample on the paper before they start painting so that it's already dirty and that you stop being precious about it. I often like to think like that with writing as well, with writing music. Like, really get your hands dirty. Well, if we do a story time... I will commit to telling you about my very first 
conducting gig. Oh, yeah. That sounds <laughs> interesting. I'm really interested in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, quite a story. I'll, I'll be glad to tell it, but not today. It's, it'll take a little time. All right, well, Dan, Sean, Miles, Steve, Francis, Claudio, thank you so much for showing up. You guys are great. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is powered by the Music Interval Theory Academy, your resource for getting clarity and confidence in music composition and orchestration. See you inside at musicintervaltheory.academy.com.